I have two questions for you, and the first one's sort of easy. What's the most famous, recognizable piece of music worldwide, ever? If you said Beethoven's Fifth, you're probably right. You can hum it. da 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 Harder question. Here are three versions. This one from Gustavo Dudamel. This one from Ben Zander. And this one from the great Arturo Toscanini. Which one's right? They can't all be right. Which is the correct speed, the correct tempo, for the opening of Beethoven's Fifth? Most people pick the third one. It's the regular kind, the way it's supposed to be. And it turns out that if you grew up in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, or 80s, you heard it on television in every hackneyed example of classical music. It was performed by the NBC Orchestra. Of course, that's the regular version. Except, as Dudamel and Xander would point out to you, it really isn't. Hey, it's Maria, and this is a special archived episode of Akimbo. No, the real version, the correct version, would probably be the one that Beethoven himself wrote out. While there weren't obvious metronome markings, there were detailed notes about how fast to play it. And in fact, it's played wicked fast. It's not that hard to figure out why the slower, almost lugubrious version of Beethoven's Fifth was Toscanini's choice. Like many conductors of his era, he was a bit of an egomaniac. And hyping up those opening notes of the big symphony, dragging them out, waving one's arms about frantically, was a good way to call attention to the music and to the conductor. Okay, so that's how it happened. But why did we all fall in love with it and accept that it was the real one? Toscanini and the broadcast media brainwashed us. They had the version that they liked and they played it so many times for so many decades that we came to accept it as the regular kind, the right way, the way it's supposed to be. Let's go from the sublime to the ridiculous. In 1953 and 54, the Griggs brothers, Neef and Golden, were building a little company called Orita. Neef, a child of the Depression, was annoyed at the fact that the little potato scraps, the ones that were left over from making french fries, were getting sold cheap as livestock feed. He figured he could do something better with them. A little time in the lab, and he came up with tater tots. Not one to launch small, Neef and his brother Golden decided to launch the tater tots at the National Potato Convention held that year in Miami. The banquet for all the potato bigwigs was held at the brand new Fontainebleau Hotel. Neef brought a satchel filled with 15 pounds of frozen tater tots, bribed the head chef to cook them up, and actually served them at the banquet. They were a big hit. How then 
to explain that less than 10 years later, Orida, the whole company, sold to Heinz for less than $35 million? Well, the answer is simple. When tater tots were new, they were sort of unknown, untested, not the regular kind. We don't feed stuff like that to our kids. Well, last year, they sold more than 3.5 billion tater tots. That's a half a tater tot for every person on the planet Earth. It's a lot of tots. What happened? What happened was it went from being the new thing to the regular kind. Tater tots were an alien. They were an invasion. They were wrong. You didn't feed them to your kids. Except now you do. Except now they sell billions of tater tots every year. They sell them in schools. They sell them in airports. They sell them in the supermarket. How come? Simple. Because they're the regular kind. Or consider one of my personal favorites, the idea of tapping cigarettes before you smoke them. You've probably seen people outside, freezing cold, addicted, standing there, ready to open their pack of Marlboros. But before they do, they slap them on the back of their hand five times, then a half turn, and then five more times. Cecil Adams from The Straight Dope was asked, why do people do that? Does it do any good? One thing you might notice is that some people pack the cigarettes from the top down. Other people turn the pack upside down and slap it the other way. If they did anything at all with this packing, they must be doing the opposite. Well, Cecil did his math and revealed that, in fact, it doesn't do anything particularly useful, especially with modern machine-rolled cigarettes that have a filter. The hate mail poured in, and there was an almost endless list of reasons why people pack their cigarettes. Some of the reasons that people shared with Cecil for packing their cigarettes It keeps the lid end from falling off. The cigarette burns slower and thus tastes better. The cigarette burns slower and thus lasts longer. It keeps tobacco bits out of your mouth. It makes your cigarette easier to light by exposing more paper. It makes the cigarette easier to light by loosening the tobacco. It makes the cigarette less likely to go out if you're smoking it in the rain. This is a symptom. It's a symptom that we're not sure why we want it to be true, but we do want it to be true. Is Pluto a planet? Why does it bother so many people when they discover that it's not? It's because it requires a shift in our paradigm. In 1903, Elmer Griggs, a paleontologist, argued that there's no such thing as a brontosaurus because the convention is that once something is a genus like an aptosaurus, then a slight variation on it doesn't deserve its own name. But if you grew up with the Flintstones and Dino and the giant dinosaurs of our youth, of course a brontosaurus is a real dinosaur. Hence the conflict. Well, shortly after I grew up, paleontologists reconsidered. They looked at the historical record. They looked at the fossils and they said, oh, eh, not so fast. It turns out that a brontosaurus deserves its own genus. Well, paleontologist Donald Prothero, a great mind in paleontology, said, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not buying this whole thing about brontosauri are back. Quote, until someone has convincingly addressed the issue, 
I'm going to put Brontosaurus in quotes and not follow the latest media fad, nor will I overrule Riggs and put the name in my books as a valid genus. Now, this is really hard stuff to do, and it's not just about naming dinosaurs or packing cigarettes. Think about the tragic case of how some dog lovers interact with their pets. The American Kennel Club says you're supposed to dock the tail of many kinds of dogs. Docking is a fancy word for cutting the tail off near the base. It can be done with surgery when the pup is only 10 days old. Sometimes they do it by wrapping rubber bands around until the tail falls off. If you ask, why are you doing this? They will say, for the health of the dog. And if you ask the people at the Association of Veterinary Medicine, they'll say, not so fast. There's no evidence that it helps the health of the dog. And in fact, in many European countries, it's against the law. If you ask a dog lover, they might say, well, it makes their back stronger. It helps them run faster. It keeps them from getting rabies. These are all reported reasons why someone might dock the tail of a dog. But the real reason, if it's a show dog, is that that's the way it's always been. It's the regular kind. It's in the rules. It says in the rules for certain kinds of dogs, you have to deduct points if the dog's tail hasn't been docked, if the ears haven't been pinned up. So where does this lead us? Thomas Kuhn, in his brilliant book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, talked about what he discovered when he was reading the original Aristotle and comparing it to Newton. Turns out, that Aristotle had all sorts of obvious mistakes, obvious mistakes in science and mechanics and structure, and that if you compared him to Newton, it was obviously not good work. But, Kuhn points out, that's not what you ought to be doing. What you have to compare Aristotle to is the people who were writing at his time, because the paradigms, the understandings, the way people expected the world to work were widely held. And it's only over time that even among scientists, people begin to be open to something that's new or different. Ignaz Semmelweis was one of the great practical scientists of our time, and he saved the lives of millions and millions of people. What he discovered was that in a hospital in Austria, if doctors washed their hands before working on a woman who was giving birth, the chances that that woman would develop a fever that would kill her went down dramatically. He basically had to invent statistics to figure this out, and it's a story for another time. The fascinating thing that comes from it is this. It took more than 20 years after this man, this scientist, this person who had a position of responsibility, figured out and proved that his research was correct 20 years before other doctors began to widely wash their hands. 20 years. 20 years of innocent people dying because washing your hands wasn't the regular kind. It wasn't the usual method. Now, what we are talking about here is the difference between neophilia and neophobia. What we know about neophobia, the fear of the new, is that there might be good evolutionary reasons for it. That today, among Norwegian rats, we find that they are very hesitant to eat a food that they haven't eaten before. 
Why? Because over the last hundred years, humans have gotten more and more clever with rat poison. And a rat who's neophiliac, who's always looking for something new at the buffet table, isn't going to live very long and isn't going to pass along his neophiliac genes to the rats that come behind. So neophobia with food is pretty widespread. We also find it in infants, in toddlers. We find it in many adults, depending on the culture that we grew up in. What are we afraid of? Are we afraid of tater tots? Are we afraid of dosas? Are we afraid of spicy food, raw fish? It's not that hard to become neophobic. Well, the same thing happens in science. The same thing happens in mechanical engineering. The same thing happens in politics. That as we walk around the world, what we will continue to discover is that most people are neophobic. A few neophiliacs are out there, eager to engage with the new idea. They are the nerds. They are the geeks. They are the people who get pleasure out of exploring the new. But we're naive if we believe that our cultural shift, even if it's a new way to eat leftover potatoes, is going to be widely accepted. If your mission is to make change happen, if you are a marketer, a culture warrior, someone trying to improve the world around us, the way that these ideas spread is important. Neophobia can be the opponent, and you're seeking people with neophilia. One of the dangers is believing that the people who have neophilia are like everybody else. They're not. And what often happens is a few people like your idea, and then it stops spreading. So let's begin thinking about how to work with this by going through the five steps that Kuhn outlined in the way ideas are adopted and shift. The first step, the one that happened yesterday before we got here, is phase one. This is the phase when there isn't a paradigm yet, when it isn't widely held how things are supposed to work. This is where Bitcoin was until recently, where email was in 1990, where you need to show up and explain to almost everyone what the rules are going to be. Sometimes they get accepted, and when they do, normal science, the second phase, kicks in. Normal science is what happens when scientists, marketers, logicians, people who care a lot, start solving problems within a space. This is what we saw on the internet during the 90s and the noughts. This is when we had a paradigm in place. We understood that people were going to be connected. We understood that computers were going to process information. But what should we do with it? That's why Facebook was pretty quick to catch on. You didn't need to adopt a new paradigm to understand what Mark and Cheryl were building. The third step is when a new idea comes along that doesn't fit with the paradigm we're used to. This causes us a lot of stress. It causes us stress because there's a distinction between what we thought was true and what's actually working. This is what happened, for example, when rap music came on the scene. Most of the people in the record industry didn't embrace rap music. They didn't play it on the radio. They didn't sell it in their stores. They didn't sign rap artists to their label. It took people like Rick Rubin to show up and change the math. But for the people who were playing by the old rules, rap represented a puzzle, a mystery, a challenge. 
didn't make any sense based on what they already believed. Which leads to phase four, the paradigm shift, a scientific revolution, a wholesale adoption of new rules, of new ways of looking at the world. And then, the last step, phase five, we begin the process all over again. This sense of creativity, construction, and then destruction, repeating again and again and again, is how our culture is built. It's about the tension that the innovator faces as she tries to change the way the world is organized. The second way to think about this is by understanding the Gartner hype cycle. And this, I think, will help explain Bitcoin or any stock bubble. It will help explain the mania that goes on when a new idea is introduced and then what happens afterwards. First, a technology or a cultural trigger occurs. This is the beginning of a fad. This is a a new idea or technology that the neophiliacs can play with. It's followed by a spike. Call this the peak of inflated expectations. This is when the true believers tell anyone they know that the world will never be the same. This is when things reach for the stratosphere, when people talk about the fact that nothing's going to go back to Earth, that this is the way it is going to be forever. Inevitably, this is followed by a crash. It's followed by a crash because real life can never match the inflated expectations. So that when people were saying helium-filled dirigibles were going to fly folks around the world, well, multiply by 100, multiply by 1,000, there's your future until it's not. But the next step, the next step is where Kuhn comes back in. The slope of enlightenment leading to the plateau of productivity. This is when the culture starts to catch up. When the people who believed in the old way of being die out, lose their jobs, don't have influence, and a new generation comes along. This is what happens after the hype is over, but we're working our way back to the real thing. Another way to think about this cycle is to look at six words and see how one follows from the other. First, whatever we've brought to the world appeals to the fringe, and so the insiders in the potato industry, the tuber kings sitting there in the 50s with their hot, crispy tots, they like going first when it comes to food innovation. Soon thereafter, the idea is adopted by the risky, the risk-takers, the people who want something that probably doesn't work but will be fun to try. If it is successful with them, the baton is passed to the people who are looking for something that is new. Maybe not so risky, but certainly not something that everyone believes in. After that, it becomes hot. Hot means the cool kids have it. Hot means that it's being embraced by cultural or scientific trendsetters. The step after that is the mass market. And the last step are the people who say, well, it's always been this way. All this makes sense, and it feels continuous. But as Kuhn hinted, and Jeff Moore wrote so eloquently about in Crossing the Chasm, it's revolutionary. That somewhere along the way, there's going to be a trough. There's going to be a chasm. There's going to be part of the population that isn't going to gracefully accept your fact, your idea, your hit song, your scientific inquiry. And when it reaches them, 
They will be like the people who argued with Cecil about packing the cigarettes. They will not have a rational reason why they are opposing what you are up to. And you cannot debate them because the debate is not the point. What they're saying to you is, my paradigm doesn't match that. My paradigm is neophobic. I need to make stuff up because I don't want it to change on my watch. A simple example. 99% Invisible reports that 79,000 people are not dead because cars have collapsible steering columns now. Before it occurred, if you were in a crash, it was quite likely that the engine would push the steering column and the steering column would go right through your chest. The car companies knew this. They patented a collapsible steering column and didn't use it for more than 10 years. Tens of thousands of people died because there were people within the car companies who didn't see the paradigm. Their paradigm was drivers are dangerous, cars are safe. And it was only after their paradigm shifted that they were able to do the thing we all needed them to do, which is to save our lives by making a safer car. We need to go back to the work of Donald Prothero, the man who stood up for Riggs and against the Brontosaurus, because he sees what is happening in our culture. Here's a quote from him. There are lots of people out there who accept science when it's convenient, But there's a lot of things that science tells us that they don't want to hear. And so then they reject those so-called inconvenient truths. And so this sort of weird little way of doing things is not only true of creationists. It's true of climate deniers. It's true of AIDS deniers, anti-vaxxers, a whole bunch of various kinds of alternative medicines. It's a very common thread. And many of them have very similar strategies in the way they battle against the reality of science. This is a scary thing, because they will accept what science has done in the way of give us progress, and give us technology, and give us transportation, and yet, they just don't want science when it gets in the way of ideology or religion. That ideology and religion are just a shorthand, it turns out, Prothero is telling us, for wanting things to be the regular way, the way that we were used to. The majority still doesn't seek out the scientific revolution. The majority still hides behind the chasm. The people who don't get it, the ones who are skeptical, the ones who stand in your way, they're not stupid. Thomas Watson, in the 1940s president of IBM, said, I think there is a world market for maybe five computers. 30 years later, Ken Olson, founder and president of Digital Equipment Corporation, the pioneers of the mini-computer, apparently he hadn't learned the lesson from Thomas Watson. He said, there is no reason anyone would want a computer in their home. He said this in 1977, after Apple Computer had launched their product. Daryl Zanuck, who produced more than 200 movies, won an Academy Award, and has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, famously said, television won't be able to hold on to any market it captures after the first six months. People will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. These people aren't stupid. They're in their industry. They've succeeded. They're like us in that they like the regular kind. The regular kind has been good to them. They've learned to see the world through a paradigm. 
And it's only when the paradigm shifts that we're able to see what's been in front of us all along. These people who are resisting your shift, your revolution, your cultural revolution, your scientific revolution, there is nothing wrong with them. They're not a special breed of people. They are us, each of us. I'm as guilty as they are. In the early 90s, when the World Wide Web came along, I didn't get it. It wasn't as good as email. It wasn't as good as AOL. When Photoshop changed their interface, I said, I can't keep up with this anymore. I like it the old way. And if you look at my music collection, you're not going to find a lot from the cutting edge, from what's new or what's now. I'm cranky too. I'm stuck in my old paradigms. This is normal. It's human. It's what we built our culture on. The act of moving from the nerds and the geeks, the early adopters, the people who are neophilic, through the population, the act of causing these revolutions to occur, that's our hardest work. It's the work we have to do to bring the culture along. And it's the work that each of us is capable of. That our neophobia, which all of us have in one way or another, keeps us in sync with our culture. And being in sync feels safe. So yes, the revolution will come. It always comes. The cycles get quicker and quicker. We start to see beyond the trough of disillusionment. We start to figure out how to move forward. But to move horizontally across the culture, to bend it, requires an insane amount of patience and persistence. Because we're making a ruckus that doesn't mean everyone's going to understand it. Not today, but maybe tomorrow. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. Here are a couple answers from last week's episode. If you'd like to send us a question, I would surely appreciate it. Visit akimbo.link, A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and press the appropriate button. I'm curious about how we balance customization with privacy. As marketing technology has advanced, people want messaging that is more and more customized to their interests. This requires marketers, or more specifically, marketing software, to know more and more about the individuals being marketed to. But when those people realize the amount of information being gathered on them and the level of privacy being encroached, they tend to want to pump the brakes and get a little bit freaked out. So how can marketers honor the sensitivities of their audience while also providing them the relevancy that often requires insight from personal data. Without a doubt, we've been spoiled by personalization, which sometimes is even personal. If you're like me, when you get to a traditional bookstore, you're impatient. Why can't they instantly reorganize the store in the order that you like it, the same way Amazon does every time? Or consider the occasional barista who has memorized who you are and what you like, and you don't even have to ask for it. 
the drink is just offered. That's exciting not because it saved you six seconds of saying macchiato with almond milk, but because it's nice to be seen and understood. So the question is, how can we do that without violating people's privacy? I'll begin with this. We don't have any privacy. We stopped having privacy as soon as we got a credit card. The credit card company knows more about you than you do. They can use analytics to figure out that you're pregnant based on what you're buying before you even know you're pregnant. Privacy isn't the issue. The issue is being surprised. We don't care that the phone company and the credit card company know stuff about us. The time that we care is when they interrupt us to demonstrate that they know something about us. When you start getting coupons in the mail saying, we noticed that you've been staying in a lot of hourly motels. Here's a coupon for some VD testing. That would freak people out. Because being surprised takes away our agency. It takes away our feeling that we are independent. So the challenge that marketers have, which has been beautifully handled, for example, by Amazon, is that people want to be tracked in certain environments. They look forward to it. They insist on it. You would not be happy if when you went to Netflix, Netflix made you start over every time. You want Netflix to know what you've seen and make predictions on what you might want to see next. That's because they're doing it for you. They may come out ahead as well, but your perception is that they are doing it for you. So that's the two things that we want. We want to know about it in advance, and we want it to be for us. If we can't do those two things as advertisers, as marketers, as people who make a service, then we better find something else to do. I often wonder how it is that you are able to come up with something deeply meaningful and insightful every day in your blog, something that inspires me and thousands maybe millions of other people. What do you do? How do you put yourself into that state of clarity in which you can create a connection to seemingly everything around you? I appreciate the kindness behind this question, and I'm playing it because I want to make a point about personalization versus personal. It turns out it is possible to speak to the humanity of many people, not all people, not even close to all people, but many of them, without knowing who they are. It is possible to stand on stage and give a concert performance without having read the dossier of everyone in the audience. It is possible to write a book that resonates with your readers. The key leap is realizing it's not for everyone. It's for the people who are listening. And if you can talk to their emotions and their needs and make promises that you can keep, then you can engage with people. Much of the nonsense that's going on around data is nonsense because the advertiser and the marketer doesn't really need it. It's being used as a crutch. It's not the point. The point is to use our posture, our position, our privilege to be able to do things for the people that we seek to serve. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. There's a big problem that's changing everything about the world as we know it. Carbon 
and the impact of humans on the earth. We talk about it with words like climate change and global warming. But there's just two really important things that you need to know about it. First, this is an overwhelmingly big problem, so much so that it's likely that you feel as though your choices don't matter in the face of it. Second, that overwhelming feeling that I just mentioned it's intentional. It was put there by design. The industries that make the biggest environmental impact have a vested interest in you feeling overwhelmed and powerless. They've marketed, lobbied, and schemed to create that feeling in all of us. In short, we've been lied to. But here's the good news. There's a lot you can do to make a difference. And the other good news is that there's still time. The Carbon Almanac is a book and project about these problems and what we can do to solve them. It was created and run by volunteers on the premise that it's not too late, but none of us can fix this problem on our own. We need each other. There are many ways to get involved, but simply learning more is a great start. Here are three steps you can take. First, go to thecarbonalmanac.org and sign up for the Daily Difference emails. They give you a short thought and a practical action that you can take alongside thousands of others every day. Second, get the Carbon Almanac book. It's full of facts, articles, graphs, and art. It's beautiful and fun to engage with. It's all footnoted and fact-checked. And importantly, it's made by volunteers whose only agenda is to solve these systemic issues. You can find it wherever books are sold. Finally, since you're listening to a podcast, search for the Carbon Almanac wherever you're listening. You'll find the Carbon Almanac podcast network and a few shows featuring expert insight, discussion, inspiration, and ways to take action. There's even a show just for kids. Do what appeals to you. Just do something. There's still time to make a huge difference in the future of the planet, but we can't solve this on our own. Join us.